Uh, Dr. Kuntz, is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod being punished by God? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Why? It, why is fairly simple, although forgotten largely at this point in our history. And that is that you can see what happens to nations, but also to churches gathered in God's name. You can see especially clearly in the Old Testament histories and the prophets, which compose really so much of the Bible, when you think about it by percentage, that God punishes unfaithfulness, not always according to its deserving and not always in the time that people believe will matter to them, for instance. So people are relieved to find out that, you know, punishment will not come down in a severe way in their lifetime or something. But that is that if every idle word is answerable, according to the gospels, then obviously continued acts of wickedness and rebellion are things for which you're answerable. And, and this gets really blended out of our thinking in the mid 20th century. And it's something on which, you know, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the Southern Baptist Convention, other churches that either went back on creeping liberalization or that never really changed, like say the Assemblies of God, other denominations. This gets blended out and sin becomes a discussion among Lutherans, certainly of especially just sort of like individual problems and vices. And then that, that even that discussion gets blended into the idea that we're all sinners and sort of can't help it at all and have no control over ourselves really. And so the discussion of original sin and then absolution for original sin becomes really, I think our sole theme which leaves a lot of people. Sounds about right. That's really well said. That that is yeah. just such an important point. Keep it, please keep it going. Keep going. Keep yeah, going. it leaves a lot of people with really no clue about what to do on a daily basis or what not to do. Just <laughs> even more basically. So I think that this is something that if you look at a Walter Meyer, an Alfred Raywinkle, um, and this is also something I think that make made people feel very uncomfortable about Herman Otten because he's sort of a remnant of this strain of thinking that used to be normal for Christians, really of all denominations. It wasn't strange. You know, this idea that God punishes sin also upon groups of any size is pretty normal and it's very biblical. But the idea that, I mean, what my affirmative answer to your question, <laughs> you know, is uh, seem might seem outre or strange to some of the listeners. The first tip off to me that there might be something going wrong in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is that we can't keep our kids. We just can't keep them around. Uh, and I, I wonder why. Um, I want to come back to that later. I, I have a question about one of the things you did say. You said yeah. that God doesn't always judge a territory, area, group, etc. with you didn't say justice, but it was almost like, you know, mishpat is not always applied. So it's not the time question. It's the oh. the equivalent. And, and I want to kind of yeah. take a stab at what you really mean is he doesn't punish you as much as you deserve. So right. even when he does, he, he's holding back a little bit. Correct. So if yeah. every idle word is going to bring back itself, its punishment upon you, mm -hmm. I mean, get ready for the fire, people. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, I, I, I think that part of the reason that karma took off as a concept in the United States as it was undergoing de-Christianization is that there's something intuitively sensible 
about the idea that what you do and say comes back around. That is not, however, the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is that what you do and say are things for which you are accountable to a holy God. He therefore remains free to remit some punishment, to show mercy to rebels. And obviously that is at the heart of the gospel, but it's also at the heart of the fact that, you know, in his lifetime, this or that king is not punished, but that at some time there will be a king who will watch his sons be slaughtered before his eyes. So the idea is that justice belongs to a just God, and therefore it remains up to him when and how he punishes this is usually biblically the occasion for the wicked to rejoice that they're going to get away with it forever because they don't see punishment being enacted right now. And this is this goes all the way from Reddit tier atheism, where, you know, if if God exists, why he not show face in sky type questions <laughs> oh, to the idea Reddit tier Reddit tier atheism. It's just so good. You're just yeah, great. Keep going. To the, uh, to the idea that, you know, if if what I were doing were were truly evil, why wouldn't God just strike me down strike me down? And that and that's just tempting God. That's just tempting him. But I mean he's going have, to. He basically says, right. you, really? Well I'll just right. just you wait for a little while, right? You think you're okay. Yeah, you, and it, I think that's a misunderstanding going all the way back to the concept of, you know, what the serpent says to Eve, you will not surely die, is that the serpent and Eve, and then also Adam, by virtue of his acquiescence in his wife's will, are all underestimating what God means when he says, you will surely die. What that process will be like, how ugly it will be, what kind of recrimination and bitterness of soul will be included in it. I think they just don't understand what death really is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So one concept coming out of this is something that has uh come into my life this last year through praying the Sons of Solomon Psalms, which are the Diaspora Psalms mostly, uh, Psalms of Ascent. And mm-hmm. this phrase, our soul, uh, is used multiple times. Mm-hmm. And I think, the, you know, the German would be zeitgeist. But, but to think of it in terms of you have a public soul and it's tied to where you live. And if it's wicked, uh, it's going to influence you. So, you know, if you can't get self-control over your individual soul, it might mm-hmm. be that your public soul is just in bad places, in bad places. I'm curious for your thoughts on that. Mm. I I think that that has to do with something that is difficult, difficult to express because infrequently discussed. So it's something about which I think, but about which I say little, and that is the nature of localized evil, localized powers. Proximity. So are, Proximity yeah. is my word. I'm working on it too. Yeah. And the problem with that is that the Bible discusses it sort of like many of the discussions of nature, especially in the New Testament, obliquely or as if it's obvious. So there are powers in Ephesians or there are angels that are being worshipped in Colossians, but the nature of their operation is fairly unclear. And when you look at really old discussions of local or proximate evil, so you go back to a time before people understood transcendence to be obviously stupid, even practically in the church, thinking that way. Explain that real, if you can, like one sentence. Yeah. So transcendence being obviously stupid is how I think 
the enlightenment actually affected people's thinking. It, it wasn't so much, I think, the exaltation of reason alone, although that that happens as a cultic activity in the French Revolution, but that transcendence being things beyond my understanding, beyond my control, or beyond anyone's understanding or control. And so I think that what happened in the church is that you begin to get a lot of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 atheism, which is practical atheism. Yeah, so yeah. even in the church, Christ is God, the Bible is God's word, blah, blah, blah. But also nothing ever happens that's beyond my understanding or control. Christianity is a theory about what happens after you die that you believe to feel better about living now. And then yeah. what yeah. happens now it's is heavily psychologized. Yeah, it's basically yeah. out of the picture. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you go back prior to that, right? So in, in Lutheran terms, this is, you know, at least the 17th century and, and things before that, because this is something, you know, in which the Reformation changes the means by which local evil is dealt with. It's dealt with a lot more directly by God's word and less often by quasi-magical substances such as salt or holy water necessarily. But the idea that there are local evils, that certain places are wicked, that witches exist, that demons exist, and that signs of possession can be recognized. The reason it's a little difficult to talk about this is because biblically it's generally not discussed, right? So you, you have demonic possession in the gospels, but, but really hardly anywhere else acts. And so the wisdom concerning it and the means of dealing with it are contained in a discussion of something that the modern world doesn't even recognize as valid. It doesn't which believe is, it exists at all. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is pastoral theology. So sitting above the discourse of what we would now call healthcare or quote health sciences is the idea that the, the major problem with human beings is their, is their soul, right? And so the, the, the means of dealing with that is not even directly the things that get exalted uh, in the Lutheran church, such as reading the Bible on a, exegesis on its own, dogmatics on its own, it is the practice of pastoral theology that is the care of souls. And so the care of souls is the highest art because it's the art that deals with the thing that most directly afflicts every single human being, which is the evils and 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 sins of his soul and of, and of souls affecting him, right? Proximate evils, wicked men, things like that. And so... That is a tradition of wisdom, which isn't even generally available to modern people. If you're interested in this, the, the place to go, whether you're a pastor or not, would be Walther's Pastoral Theology, which we finally have the entirety of in English. And you can see, you know, three to four pages on the nature of demonic possession. And this is not really supposed to be sensational, right, in the sense of being interesting or paranormal or weird, or you use like special scientific equipment to find ghosts. This is just the idea that there are things beyond my ken and my control, and there are means of dealing with them via God's word. That's some hot sauce right there. Let, let me tell you, that is some absolute hot sauce on a complete right turn. I mean, we should talk <laughs> about this more, but um, yeah. coming out of conversation with you about the the two previous episodes, Kid Prison 1, Kid Prison 2. We got this one now and another coming. Um, yeah. One of the things I realized, I'm going to say this, I'm going to let you just tell me, no, you can't say that because it's historically out of context or whatever you're going you're gonna to correct me or you're going to say, that's right. Um, <laughs> I have come to the conclusion I do not homeschool. I do not. I give my children the best private education I can. That's what I do. Historically, that's what I do. And that's what I intend to do. Now, yeah. 
is, I mean, everyone yeah. else would say we yeah. homeschool. Is that fair for me to do that? Yeah, sure. I mean, homeschooling is a form of, is a form of private education and, and anything that's, that is not participating in our, our state church, which is public education, is a form of private education. Homeschooling is a certain method of private education of let's say content delivery very blandly and, and grayly, but it's a form of private education. I think I see what you're doing with like rhetorically. Absolutely. But yeah, but I think I, I, I don't think homeschooling is a term that we need to reject necessarily. Although it's, you know, whatever, every term has its own baggage. I just, I know that if I talk to my neighbor, and he's like, so where your kids go to school? They get a private education. <laughs> my neighbors will be like, all right. If I go, oh, we homeschool. He's going to be like, oh, all right. Yeah. And, you know, I'd just rather not have every, how do I say this? The homeschooling community has apples, oranges, bananas, limes, and all manner of different people. And then sometimes they're the more differenter of the populace. They, they are uh, yeah. forerunners, outgoers, outliers. And, and so the result is that our name is just, it's just not real good. It really isn't. To, to announce yourself as a homeschooler in, in many areas is to announce your insanity. Now, maybe that's what you want to do. And that's why we're going to talk about it. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I mean, sometimes I just, you know, you can make something up because there are lots of kids things for which there's no provision for homeschoolers. So you have to like certify that you're a resident of an area for a sports league or something. I just say my kids go to St. Athanasius Lutheran Academy or something, whatever. It doesn't matter. And I'm the principal. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's all about legal speak, man. We live in yeah, 1984. But I, I think, I think that that branding thing has to do with the historical origins of modern homeschooling. Right. And where that came out of, because it didn't come out of where, sort of the the founding fathers, not the mothers, but the fathers of modern homeschooling thought it was going to. I mean, and it and it's also just different from the insight that homeschooling exists in the distant past as an activity really confined, as we have discussed before, especially talk about private schools, as an activity confined to those who are possessed of lots of leisure, really. And that's not I'm not I'm not saying that reprehensibly. I mean leisure a certain amount of leisure is identified classically as requisite to cultivation of freedom yeah i mean you're talking to the modern age which thinks the work day is eight hours long i mean i think the ancient man even the the farming toiling man he did not work eight to ten hours sleeping in the field unless someone was on his back and and no one could be there all the time they had to be busy being leisurely in the mansion and all so you know like (laughs) the five five hour a day kind of uh walk and do and get her done pace we just can't even imagine it and so when we talk about leisure we have this this busybody laziness problem um, yeah. that we can't even imagine. We're, none of us are taking leisure anywhere except for when we're being drunk, right? When we're just trying to absolutely imbibe and escape the torment of the present lack of leisure in the work. Yeah. And I, I, I think, I do think that that has to do with the United States being a non-Anglican, but also a non-Lutheran um, Protestant country culturally is that leisure time was actually relatively less available except on the Sabbath to most Americans historically. And so the 
customs of festivals, saints days, these things are all largely lost, right? So the idea that you would, for instance, take off the day of Pentecost and the two days after it. In the United States, I've only ever found that the Amish do that, and they do that just because <laughs> they're still so German. So I think that- It has its benefits. It does have its <laughs> benefits. They're not even really German-American in that sense. So I think I think that we particularly work the amount that we do. In the modern United States, people used to take more vacation time, but we work the amount we do for a, for a complex of reasons. But I think we always worked to an inordinate degree because we only ever had one one holy day per week to the extent that, you know, I mean, we won battles in the revolution because we were fighting on Christmas, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's a big part of the problem. That's a, that's a little bit, that's, that's even a, a, a narrowed amount of time compared to the nature of leisure that's requisite, for instance, in say 1800 in order to homeschool, which is really going to be something that fathers are doing where homeschooling exists or tutors, right? So where that does exist, the father's probably a clergyman or a lawyer or some sort of gentleman farmer. And then, or there's a tutor that's hired and the child is homeschooled really in order to be prepared to go to this or that college, William and Mary, Yale, whatever. But the, the nature of homeschooling is probably because there's a combination of leisure on the part, especially of the father. This is really not mothers doing this. A combination of leisure and also distance, right? So America is overwhelmingly rural. Travel is difficult. So unless you want to send your child to a city or to a nascent boarding school, homeschool is what the, the leisure are going to do. Interesting. Interesting. And then it disappears. It does disappear. And I think that's largely a result of travel. So this is also to some degree true of homeschooling, that homeschooling, homeschooling rates, even among denominations like Lutherans or Catholics, homeschooling rates are going to increase with, you know, decreasing urbanization in an area because it's just simpler that way. And, you know, you don't have to fund schooling, but as travel becomes easier and even even once one-room schools largely disappear, which is the 1920s or 1930s, homeschooling still is not going to fill the gap. And the reason the reason for that is that you need not just a certain amount of distance, you also need leisure. And the vast majority of men don't have leisure. And women, prior to labor-saving devices, don't have leisure. And I know that that sounds pedestrian, but it is something to think about, even if you're homeschooling right now, is that home management and mothering do not actually include like large scale academic instruction, maybe reading, but they, they don't historically include academic instruction or advanced instruction or things like that. I think it's really the availability of leisure saving devices that we don't even have in like the 1950s that for cultural reasons, we'll talk about in a second homeschooling is going to become possible but also remember that families are a lot smaller and then by the time homeschooling picks up in the 70s and 80s than they were in the 1920s on average. So you've got smaller families, lots of labor-saving devices. And so you have a, you have a group of people, that is women at home, who have never had the amount of leisure 
that they have uh, historically ever until, you know, the 60s and 70s. What I think is really interesting about that is one of my my significant principles I've come to realize is that so-called leisure saving devices or labor saving devices have a rate of inequivalent exchange in their work. They, they compound over time and do not give you the leisure they promise often at a certain level of complexity, <laughs> they become more of a torment. And anyone who's tried to work with computers and for any length of time, I watch the changes, the bugs, new stuff and development mm-hmm. uh, and whatnot. Uh, it seems to be getting worse from my end. I use, the less I use it, the more often the first thing that happens when I get on a computer, something goes wrong and takes me 15 minutes the wrong direction. There's a, there's a, there's an inequivalent exchange taking place and connected to this idea is something that we, we already talked about, but from a different direction. And that is that there is an unseen part of this world. There is an unseen heaven that is not the holy high heaven of God, but is the fourth dimensional trans warp demonic, whatever it is. And that proximate reality, that unseen proximate reality is always part of, well, Einstein's theory of relativity, except not taken into account. And so there is a lot going on behind the scenes with regards to labor-saving devices that make me wonder if they have really let anybody save any time. Um, I, I mean, and this is just from our end, and uh, perhaps I need to pick up more hammer. Uh, but uh, in our household, uh, my wife definitely gets the value of a washing machine. No question, that washing machine, it does lots of stuff. And then it's nice to have the piped-in toilet and, and you know, all that stuff, right? And it's right, really yeah. nice to have the piped-in propane. Those things work well. Uh, and I, I don't doubt that saves are probably two to three hours a day. And those those devices. Mm-hmm. After that, there's not a lot of return, I think, for everything else in terms of time. So th- your point, I think, I've talked myself into agreeing with you. Your point stands on those certain labor-saving <laughs> devices. That being said, yeah. what I see nonetheless is that the more time people think they have, the less time they have because the more they fill it with nonsense. And so there is no labor saving going on. There is an abundance of, again, sort of drunken leisure trying to ignore the fact of how overworked everybody is, how stressed everyone is, how much we're all afraid the world's going to end in some sort of crazy battle and and all of that, right? Compounding. Um, And so you hear your average modern woman say things like, well, I can't homeschool. (laughs) It's too hard. It's too hard. What's too hard? What's too hard right now? I mean, maybe you can answer that question for me, though. But yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I think that the too hard thing has to do with a presumption of expertise, which which plays hmm. into the history. I think that's a big part of that. Labor saving devices really does just mean sort of the components of home economics. It doesn't it doesn't mean computers or really any of that. I mean, labor saving devices all exist in almost all American homes by you know 1965. So you know, except for the microwave. So when you're, when you're looking, <laughs> when you're looking at that an exchange on that one too, man, it doesn't taste as good and you know it. <laughs> yeah. So what, what you're dealing with is that that all doesn't combine necessarily to produce a growth in unschooling or homeschooling unschooling being sort of an earlier and more common term. And there are two forces here and they both come out of the 1960s. So this is something to consider that, as I've said before, I don't, I don't actually live in the country that my parents were born in, even though we were all born within probably 40 miles of each other. My, both my mother and my father and myself wasn't the same country. 
because for because of other factors we've talked about, but also because of how much changes, you can see how much comes out of the 1960s that was just nowhere in the radar in, say, 1958. And the two streams that I would identify as composing where homeschooling comes from, as we now know it, are respectively the one that gets it started, but then turns out not to matter much, and the one that doesn't start it really, but turns out to be how people think of homeschoolers. The one that gets it started comes not entirely, but largely begins with a man named John Holt, who develops a newsletter eventually called Growing Without Schooling, and then eventually writes a book, and I think it's 1981, about teaching children at home. Holt doesn't actually come out of public education. He comes out of schooling, full stop, uh, having taught at a couple different private schools in a couple different places. And his conviction is that school does injustice to the child, that really what school is for is to train the child in certain habits of social obedience and conformity. And so Holt is not religiously motivated. He's really ideologically motivated in a sort of indeterminate, sort of classically American way. And by classically American, I mean the sort of instinctive thrust toward liberty, right? It doesn't have a necessarily ideological component. It's not about a non-aggression principle or the gold standard. It's just, I don't want to be forced to do something by other people. Or I don't want to be told what to do. That sounds right? like a guy after your heart. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, um, in, in, a certain, in a certain sense, totally, yeah. So what, what Holt does is that through his newsletter, which was, newsletters were still a big deal for a lot of political and ideological and religious campaigns down into you know the late 90s. Through this newsletter, he's going to develop and the writing that he does beginning in the 60s and then sort of culminating with this manual he's going to publish toward the end of his public career is he's going to develop people who are into what's going to be called unschooling or called by a different person now almost totally forgotten a Catholic priest named Ivan Illich de-schooling. And that is, this is an idea that, that school is itself a problem, the existence of school and because of where I went to that we talked about on, I think, the last episode where I went to college, I actually know a, a strange proportion of this sort of what is almost always a very left-wing remnant of the homeschool community. And it's a remnant because it's really the origins that the, the original critique of is, is not just of public school, it's of school and of indoctrination. And this is, this is a sort of, this is a remnant of the 1960s left in the same sense that the back to the land movement was a remnant. A lot of those people have changed drastically ideologically since the 1960s, maybe not the original generation, but their children. And at this point, their children's children, that there were things sort of nascent in 1960s, the 1960s American left that were not at all how we now think of the American left. And one of those was the idea that indoctrination was actually like a basic problem. You should not do that to children. You are warping them. You're destroying them. You're crushing them by doing that. And this links up with opposition to the organization man and the, and the man in the, in the gray suit that, you know, the problem with America is conformity. Now the left would probably not at all say that today, except to encourage, you know, black people not to straighten their hair, which is certainly there. 
prerogative, but the idea that the basic problem is conformity and social judgment and people not being able to think independently was a very big strain in the 1960s and 70s on the left. And unschooling, which is kind of the, I don't know, the, the foster mother of what we now think of as homeschooling, is one of those instances. And it was very sort of wild. Nobody was saying, well, you're going to pull your kids out of public education so that they can learn you know, how Harriet Tubman is actually the most prominent figure in American history. It didn't really have any of those sort of ideological components that we now identify with the American left. It really was the idea that, that conformity as enforced, that, that school is basically like our version of compulsory child labor. Compulsory education is our version of you know, making kids go to a coal mine for 10 hours a day. And it's awful. And so you just shouldn't do it. And that's, that's, that's how homeschooling gets its first initial modern impetus. So many good things in there. It's fascinating how many seeds that are now kind of the movement that a thinking common sense man who has to effectively be conservative publicly regarding yeah. things like whether people break into his house and stuff, right? Like he's against that. <laughs> um, yeah. That, that man is clinging to things that are seeds of a left that has left those things behind in more than one way. So you mentioned homeschooling. I feel like you mentioned another one, but then it made me think of how much in the Missouri Synod, the liturgical movement is a remnant of, of the liberal left and now has become yeah. owned right by the conservative right. as a flag right. and a banner. And so the homeschooling right. tradition looks like it sits in a similar kind of place. Uh, the phrase unschooling, um, I like de-schooling. That's kind of, kind of fun. Uh, unschooling, I have always heard that used by people who use it as like this super specific term. Like I'm not allowed to say I unschool because that would mean I do that. I'm not doing that. And so that's a fascinating thing to, to think of now. So unschooling, de-schooling, homeschooling historically cannot be segregated from each other uh, as, as a movement. And again, as you say, because there's an idea that sending children to labor in the morning is wicked that this is just not what you do to children. And once upon a time, it looked worse because instead of the iPad to suck their soul out and kill their brain, they were mining coal. And now we say, isn't it great as they cry and we leave and say, it's good for them and it's good for us, we swear. Um, we tell ourselves these things over and over again. For my yeah. part, for my memory, that certainly is what I remember school being. I mean, it just leached leached everything that I enjoyed about life out of even the things I like to do, you know? And it's like, now yeah. it's in school and it's bad. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, but, and, and then on this too, to see that everyone knows this, everyone knows this because in language, the word school is now an insult. I schooled yeah, it's like you. preach. Yeah. I schooled you, right? And it means it means you're low. It means yeah. I know. And so everyone wants to get out of school. I can't wait to stop going to school. I went school over. There, it is evident we hate this thing, and yet we're going to have people. You know, we're going to have people be like, they're against children because of this conversation, right? Because of their idolatry of this idea that you must concentration camp kids in order to have them grow up, in spite of the fact that for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, they're not staying with us after we do this. Yeah, I, I think that there is maybe a myth to be busted here about Americans. And when I said a basically American instinct, I mean, it's something you can see pop up a lot. But I do think it has to do with the, the closing of the frontier, but also the fact that the vast majority of Americans and their ancestors were never on any frontier, right? Probably the vast majority of Americans alive today 
came here via immigration some t- to a place where there was never a frontier, probably since the Civil War. So it's not even actually in a lot of people's history, epigenetically, that they were living on a frontier fending for themselves. And it, 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 there, there are stray comments by Europeans in both world wars about how uniform the Americans are. There's a French novelist named Louis Ferdinand Céline who talks about how boring the Americans are because they all behave the same way. They all have the same vices when they come to Paris. They all consort with the same prostitutes and get drunk on the same wine. And I think that there is, you don't really actually realize how conformist America is maybe until 2020, but also until you drop out of something that is normal, like watching TV or yeah, or going to school. And then you tell somebody that you don't do that. And they, they really are, they're flabbergasted. They're nonplussed. They don't they're know. Nonplussed. To use a good cowboy word, uh, flabbergasted. They, they, they don't know what to say. It's like, yeah. So I think that that is, that is something in which, and I've, I've said before that, you know, there are aspects of the left to which I am sympathetic or supportive. And the reason for that is that that dynamic, the left-right spectrum, doesn't really apply for the vast majority of people, including people who become prominent. So, you know, the back to the land movement is not, is not wrapped up with some sort of climate change ideology originally. And it is in some ways a reactionary movement, very much so in that it's saying that we are not who we truly are until we are in connection with the earth in some way. Obviously that can have pagan overtones, but not necessarily. So that's, you know, I think, I think unschooling deserves some credit as an impulse, but the problem that unschooling is going to have, and it's, it's going to be kind of re-pushed by a guy who taught in New York public city public schools and was an award-winning public school teacher, John Taylor Gatto, who writes um, a book, I think in 93, talking about how horrible school is and how he was tired of just like doing, you know, just forcing kids into, into prison, basically. The reason unschooling and even the idea that like homeschooling is, is, is this originally left-wing thing uh, in many ways in modern America, the reason that's going to seem strange to people is because the left is generally disorganized until proven otherwise. Okay. The Communist Party USA is a great exception to that, but people whose impulses toward liberty, that kind of left, are generally going to be disorganized. So these folks do not form, you know, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. They do not have enormous conventions year after year after year down to the present year. And when people fail to organize, they're going to fail to flourish and promote themselves and extend themselves. I think that this, especially a leftist critique of organization, could have really gone somewhere in the 70s and 80s, but it fails to partly because it's just a, a lack of organization. You got me in the middle of the note here. Again, I, I could go off for like 30 minutes yeah. on a lot of what you said. I, that <laughs> the other, I mean, the other stream, the people that, you know, are stereotypical homeschoolers at this point, the other stream is a vastly different group of people. But they also come out of the 1960s because if you see the 1960s as the breakdown of American consensus, right? Consensus about what should be done, right? I mean, we, we, fought, <laughs> we fought a war in Asia to prevent the extension of communism in the 1950s, and it didn't have anything like the public relations problems 
that the one that we fought in the 60s and 70s had. So you get a breakdown of American consensus even on things that are basically the same endeavor. Coming out of that breakdown are not just these leftist impulses, but the rise of what's going to get organized as and even incorporated as the moral majority or the religious right. And this was a movement that I think had a lot more potential than it ever manifested politically. But homeschooling is an example where it did manifest its political potential because you get people, and these are, these are largely the same folks that we talked about sort of dropping out of a public school system that had been friendly to Protestantism. These are largely Protestants, largely not Lutheran Protestants who recognize that America and America's schools are not really a place for them and theirs anymore. And their reaction to that in many cases is not, not generally to form schools. Homeschooling will grow enormously in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, precisely because some fair percentage of American children between two and 5%, which is still a lot of kids, are going to be homeschooled. And they're going to be homeschooled because there's a recognition that the responsibility for parenting does not belong to the state, right? And in this American dichotomy, what is there? There's the state and then there's me and mine, right? And I, I think that part of the reason this doesn't happen as much until relatively recent years in Catholic and Lutheran circles is because Catholics and Lutherans live within intermediary life authorities like the church mm -hmm. or the church's school. Whereas theologically, a lot of American Protestants don't live with that intermediary authority having any kind of anything like the authority that, that, yeah, if the, you can, that if the you can church, church has. Shop. If you can Catholics church shop, there's yeah, not going to be right. a lot of authority. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so they, the thing about Christian homeschoolers, and they are overwhelmingly Christian, the thing about Christian homeschoolers is that they are going to actually organize. And the reason they have to organize is because like the history of public schooling or private schooling, the history of homeschooling is at least 50 different stories in America because it has to do with your relationship to your state in the strict sense of that term in American politics. So homeschooling is not generally actually illegal in America. It's just not really like regulated or dealt with in many cases. And it's also part of the reason that you're going to find such vastly different and sometimes surprising degrees of regulation. So for instance, the state that you live in actually has like the best. Yeah. It's the best. Yeah, which, which is like, like okay. It's just know. like you do it. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Okay. No problem. I mean, the place that had, you have to, you have to fill up paperwork for everything here. And like, right. like hey, there's no problem. What yeah. I think is, is we're, a, we're a testing ground. I think that Illinois is used publicly over the last 40 years to allow the right to flourish in the Northwest corners. They gerrymander them out and then they field test new ideas in the area to see how we respond. And then they run that out to the national later. So they want us to stay free so that they can trap us later. That's, that's my big conspiracy to two lose on us anyway. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, the exact story of homeschoolers in, in Illinois, but I think the, the, the overarching issue is that you get with, Michael Ferris significantly from the West coast originally 
organizing a homeschool legal defense association hmm. the reason that you're that you're going to get that is is that shockingly this is an example where the right capital r capital r religious right in this case huh. the right doesn't wait to see what its position is supposed to be which is <laughs> pretty unusual in american politics usually they wait oh you're trying to get us into a war well we were against going to war in europe oh you're trying to remake america socially through legislation and funding 1930s 1960s we're against that they they always wait in this case they don't wait they realize that the writing is on the wall for their children they want their children to think or be something different they just start doing it and then when challenged in various places they actually begin to defend themselves yeah. collectively. Yeah, that's good. It's why the story of homeschooling is in some is so I don't I find it inspiring honestly because it's an example of people being proactive rather than reactive. I mean I'm I'm totally fine with being reactionary, but being reactive is not only exhausting, it's also so unattractive. If you let you're someone just, else I, choose the battlefield, you lose. Yeah, you're, right? yeah they, they get to pick where the battle's going to be fought, and they get to pick which weapons you're going to use. That's horrible. Pick your own weapons. Fight when you want to, like Washington with the British. Evade fighting if you, can't, if you know you can't sustain losses like that right now on that battlefield. And survive, you know. And they're focused on survival. And it one of the big differences here is I, they weaponized something that was weaponized earlier in American history and actually achieved a lot of change, right? However you feel about it. And that is the political power of women organized mm -hmm. with appeal to interests that women specifically have. So there's a term that historians use for everything from child labor bans in the early 20th century to voting in prohibition but I would also apply it to the history of modern homeschooling, especially Christian homeschooling, and that is maternalist reform. You appeal to mothers and you say, if you don't do something, if you don't go talk to your congressman, if you don't show up at the state capitol on you know, Tuesday the 17th, your children are going to be taken from you. That is powerful, right? And it's something that Christians did earlier with things like you know, we don't want children to go work in coal mines for 10 hours a day. So this is something that gets really, I think, weaponized by homeschooling, where hmm. modern homeschooling is going to differ from much earlier American homeschooling in that it's primarily the activity of mothers. And it is politically highly self-aware in a way that is very unusual on the right. So I'm a, I'm a homeschooling father and I'm a Missouri Synod Lutheran. I have a much better awareness of what is going on legally. I mean, just apart from my own research, a much better awareness of what is going on legally with homeschooling, as I do also with guns, than I do with things that are affecting my church, right? And it doesn't mean that nothing has ever affected my church, but there are things where, like, my church has actually been sued in 1998 for not hiring enough Black people at KFUO, the synodical radio station, almost no Missouri Synodians have ever heard of FCC versus LCMS, even though the church body was actually in in court. About did the black it. Did the Black Caucus come out as a result of that, or is that? I don't that? know. The Black Caucus. That's a whole different story. But the Left Black turn. the Black Caucus goes back to the sixties. Yeah. Cool. Okay.
So, but that's an example where, you know, I have these different interests that are political interests because my church has also its own political interest in survival, which is legitimate. And, but my church, even though I, I mean, I work for my church as it, as such, I'm not aware of what's going on, you know, but with homeschooling, I certainly am. And all I had to do was, you know, basically sign up. And uh, now I have all this awareness. And the reason I have the awareness and what the awareness does is that it doesn't create a sense of constant urgency, although it, it, it would and does when it needs to in my state. But it gives me a sense that, okay, this report is being released by Harvard University about how homeschooling is evil. Well, obviously they're doing that because 2020 saw such a growth in homeschooling because everyone realized not just how insane school was, but also how misery inducing it is. Oh my goodness. Which is, I think it's not just, I, I, I think if you're trying to convince people that schooling is a bad idea, you don't want to just appeal to, especially mothers, but also fathers by saying, they're teaching your kids crazy things. A lot of people don't understand any of that. And they maybe didn't go to school there or went to school 25 years ago. They weren't taught that they were metaphysically evil. Saying your kid is miserable is immediately powerful. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it is. And is. so, so then I think the kid that, will be miserable if they take him out. They can't play sports then. And that, right. that is why they're doing it. And that's, that's what the right. kid's doing it for too. Like everyone thinks it's for that. Right. We just start some club travel teams and like, save a lot of time and money. Goodness gracious. Yeah. A lot of which, if you have enough in your area can be organized around homeschoolers. But also, I mean, even just the idea that like activities are what constitutes a childhood is absurd. Right. I mean, it's just absurd. And um, I, you know, I will reaffirm my love here for Mark Twain. Oh. There is one of my favorite speeches in all of literature is Huck's speech at the end, not of Huck Finn, but of Tom Sawyer, which leads into Huck Finn where Huck talks about what it's like to be brought into town and made to go to school. And he just, he just hates it. You know, he just hates it. He wants to have a life and school prevents him from having a life. And it's not that all academic instruction is evil or something and a certain amount of discipline is good, but the idea that that's what constitutes a life, that life is constituted by group activities determined by other authorities that's not really a life I want to live. And it's on not a, a life that I want my children to on live. On a clock. Yeah. Yep. On a clock. Exactly. That poor kid has got to be doing something. I mean, I, I remember now, man, you watch that clock from you know, cradle to, to exit, man. Uh, and it's, it is, it's your God. Speaking of gods, there's like more I want to say, but let's just get to the yeah. 1980s as primordial soup. I mean, that's, that's a cool topic. Yeah. The, the 1980s are primordial soup in the sense that they are the place and the time that are going to define how people think of homeschooling. This may not be where we're going because I think of the increasing numbers of people dropping out of systems of schooling, but their primordial soup for homeschooling are Christians learning young earth creationism. The girls are wearing denim skirts. There are debate competitions. People are quote, socially awkward. They're but they win the spelling up. bees, right? Right, like the, the right. girl who bought um, on spelling bee. I remember that. That's right. It's also primordial soup for institutions that that cater to homeschoolers. So things like homeschool conventions. Also, I believe in the early '90s, maybe. So this is thought of in the '80s, but it doesn't come to fruition in the '90s. You get Patrick Henry College, which is designed for homeschoolers by the Ferrises, who are the leaders in HSLDA. It's also the primordial soup for the growth of homeschooling out of, let's say, very conservative 
Protestants, also to Catholics, also to Lutherans. And that's going to result in different kinds of people sociologically existing within those churches, right? So what that means is that you go from, let's just say among Catholics or Lutherans, you go from being Catholic or Lutheran loyally means having lived your life inside the system and its schools to, of course, you loyally go to church, right? You're going to find a disproportionate number of homeschoolers at any very traditional, let's say liturgically traditional Catholic or Lutheran congregation. Of course you go to church, but otherwise you don't live inside the system. Whereas if you go back 50 years in either of those churches, Catholic or Lutheran, not only the the priest or pastor, but also the people who are occupying denominational offices, who teach in the colleges and the schools, have lived their entire lives in a system. And that I I I I think this is this is good, this is bad, this is just a factor, could be good or bad. Part of the rise and fall of nations. Yeah. Is that homeschooling create it it just creates a different perspective on life. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we sent our kids to a classical Christian school. And then when we moved, the last time we moved, we started homeschooling and it creates a totally different perspective on life because your life is just determined by different factors. And once you begin to imagine what you could do, instead of asking what other people are asking you to do, it just changes your mind. Let's just go canoeing next week in Denver. What do you say, kids? Let's go. I mean, you got to have the workflow and whatever, but the point being like, what are you interested in? You don't have to follow the crowd. And this is a marvelous world full of so many things your kid wants to put his or her hand to and can't right? and can't because they're trapped behind a screen in a desk. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, this is, this is a question and maybe the reason I'm not sure it's for everybody is that it could be that human beings constitute subspecies. And so, you know, we're all, I don't know, we're all sort of like cattle, but some of us are actually, you know, bison and some of us are domesticated cattle and some of us are longhorns. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, vocation. I, I mean, it's a vocational yeah. idea and you can go all the way to brave new world with your alphas, your betas and epsilons, all that. I mean, people are different. Come on. People are, people are different. And what I'm saying is you can try to domesticate bison and you can keep them on a farm and you can build fences and you can actually run that. But if you knock the fence down, they will go wild the second they possibly can. This is not going to happen with every species or subspecies. And so I think that what you're getting, even in churches that have not generally even encouraged independent thought or independent perspectives on things, the perspective on almost anything in life is kind of thoroughly managed. So this is, this is certainly true in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, because it's very reliable. If you're from the system in 1895, I can tell you what you think. If you're from the system in 1975, I can tell you what you think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like, so in 1895, you're against birth control. In 1975, you've never thought about being against birth control, (laughs) even though your parents might have been and your grandparents definitely were, but you're from the system. So I know what you think. Homeschooling is going to create, even in churches that have never had that social dynamic before, just vastly greater independence of thought. And that, that could be good and it could be bad. Prophetic, okay. prophetic disruption, false or true, <laughs> false or true, but prophetic disruption. Yeah, right. False or true. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that to me is, is, is what is going on in addition to, maybe this sounds paradoxical. I really don't think it is. There are other examples of this in American history, lots of independent thinkers organizing for some political purpose, 
that is going to create homeschooling as we know it as sort of a social and political phenomenon. And that begins in the 1980s. And it's probably, it, to my mind, it's probably the most successful part of the religious right as it was organized and constituted in the 70s and 80s. The, the biggest remnant of that and the most successful remnant of that are the homeschoolers. Yeah, I mean, Pat Buchanan wrote some books, right? And then kind of is where it, it ends, religious right. I mean, did they do anything? I mean, I remember hearing about it. I don't know anything about it. Like, I know they were talked yeah. about as being bad on the news or something, right? Like that's, <laughs> Yeah, it that's, was bad on the news, um, which really gets the noggin jogging. It was bad on the news. The religious right was organized, especially in reaction to Roe v. Wade, I think. Ah, well, then, then something good came out of it there. Pro-life movement does exist. and Yeah, the, yeah, know. the pro-life movement, but religious right being conservative evangelicals voting. So this is kind of, I think, boomers waking up from the 60s and the 70s, which were kind of, I think the 70s were a total horror show. And this does not get acknowledged. Just But go look at crime rates. Disco. Disco. It's insane. It's completely insane. Yeah. But boomers waking up, they come into things like promise keepers. They come into things, some of them like homeschooling. They come into things like Jerry Falwell's moral majority. And there are institutions that come out of the, I mean, Liberty University, which is yeah. quite pretty enormous, is a product of this religious right. It doesn't deliver on its promise in terms of turning America back. Politically, no, no. But but out of, I believe, Liberty University, Gary Habermas, uh, some great great work on the resurrection of Jesus being done, you know, scholastically. Yeah, and the and the homeschoolers, I I think I think the homeschoolers are not just a sort of, let's say, a rewilding of certain American children. Homeschoolers are also a reaction. And they're not not only in like the reflexive sense of reaction, but politically they are a reaction. So the reason that you can get things like Noah Webster's Dictionary printed today freshly or McGuffey's Eclectic Readers or lots of things from, you know, 1849 from America are because the homeschoolers actually use them. So they produce them. And this is a quote subculture, but after the sixties, anything worthwhile is a subculture. <laughs> so uh, fine. I belong to a subculture. That's fine. So reaction in the sense of not necessarily politically organized, except in defense of the institution of homeschooling, it could go other places. It, it needs to go other places. It needs to seize other ground. But reaction in the sense of some sort of healthy response. And a lot of things that people take for granted, most listeners to this show, take for granted the existence of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Well, that's a reaction too. That's a reaction to the disappearance of old ways in Lutheran lands and a return by people who did who had not personally experienced them just like homeschooling so by reaction i mean something fruitful but resourcing from the past rather than as is common in the modern west from some kind of indeterminate future and with that realizing that i don't have to stay where i am if it sucks like, like it, I don't have to let someone destroy my faith. I don't right. have to let someone steal my life unless they do. Right. But if I see it coming, 
I don't have to let them. Right? It's right. not my moral obligation <laughs> right. to let right. my enemy know where I'm hiding. Right. That's not how it works, right? And there's, somehow the Christians in America have gotten this moral idea that we're supposed to like, like give the other team the ball more or something. I, it's just yeah, a weird that's why, self-destruction. That's why homeschooling is such a strange story in the history of, let's say, the American right, because it's not an example of waiting for other people to tell you what it's okay to do. It's a part of epigenetic tribal memory, as you've turned me on to now. That is such a cool, <laughs> cool idea. We have a number of bullet points left. We're over the hour. Yeah. I, I, we can go plenty long today for both these episodes from my part. It, it, do you want to hit all these? There's like uh, the homeschooler who is non-religious yeah. and their decline. Yeah. The, the vanishing non-religious homeschooler is, this really depends on where you are, but it is relatively small because progressives have... Progressives are Orthodox members of the state church of this problem. So even in a highly rural conservative area, you know, the the village atheist can send his child to public school and not have the child disabused of the parents' beliefs. Right, right. So the impetus toward homeschooling is only going to exist in as much as the leftist or non-religious parent, I mean, conservative and non-religious, that's a pretty small slice of life. The generally leftist non-religious parent would have to have a sort of hankering for freedom. Now, I think this could be a potential growth area. So like if you live, if you live in Western Oregon and you're listening to this, you could consider like running a homeschool co-op of some kind and you could pick up some people if they were amenable to your ways that might end up listening to the gospel because you were teaching their child how to read or write or something about American history. That's possible. I think that's a vanishingly small percentage in most places because hankering for freedom plus leftism just is not how the current American left is constituted. And social media has really consolidated opinion I think in, in large parts of the political spectrum. Tulu lives without question. Uh, homeschooling, I think, based on what you said, it may be fair to say homeschooling will exist as a movement insofar as and as long as you have a narrowing of forced indoctrination of a top people and a bottom people. So any people that are under another people, like if they mm-hmm. have to send them to school, they will, but they're going to homeschool afterwards and tell them their history yeah. and how, why you guys are all liars. Right. And so like uh, that, I think we can maybe see then the, the tighter you tighten your grip, the more star systems slip through your fingers, the more they try to indoctrinate everybody, the more you will have people say no. And then they'll hear yeah. other people saying no, and it rises up again. You want to respond to that? Well, I think that homeschooling relies on parents actually having something to say. And that applies if you think about homeschooling as sort of a way of organizing academic instruction, obviously. And so one of the, I think the joys of homeschooling is all the stuff that I learn in order to, or relearn in some cases, to teach to my children. Mm -hmm. But I think it also applies if you think about homeschooling as just kind of nature's way of schooling. Even if you send your child to a physical school somewhere other than the home for some length of time each day or in a grade or whatever. And that is that homeschooling is nature's way because you are originally with your parents. It's not, it doesn't feel natural to people, not just teaching English or nature study or Latin, but talking to your children about significant things and being the most significant influence in your children's lives 
do not, those things do not feel natural to people because they have been programmed to participate in social activities. And this is where, you know, whatever, who cares? We're, we're this deep into the episode and the listeners are sympathetic. I'll just bring it up. Theodore Kaczynski, quote, AKA the Unabomber. Okay. His identification of leftism as a graduate of Harvard University and the University of California at Berkeley is that the leftist is defined primarily not by some sort of ideological conviction, but by being over-socialized. <laughs> that is, he has no particular convictions. His political existence and his... Heard. I would say also the existence of his soul is determined by what other people think. Our soul. People find homeschooling difficult and leftism feels natural to people precisely because it is a method not so much of delivering a specific set of convictions about equality or something. It's a method of controlling people. And homeschooling feels weird because you have to exercise self-control over what your child thinks about the sky or the existence of the world or the rationale for the opposite sex existing or where babies come from or why bees appear in fields at certain times of year. You have to know what to say about things. You have to have your own thoughts. You have to have your own ways of expressing yourself. It was on tonight though. No, we got a show to watch. Right. And so if your life is constituted not only by group activities and by group schooling, and by, but also by group indoctrination in the form of media, you simply don't really have anything to say. And you outsource the raising of your child throughout the day, throughout his childhood, even when he's not in school, to other people. So let me say that I, the first preschool I went to that was at a Lutheran church was when I was about three. It was dirty. I remember that. And it was mm -hmm. dark. I remember that. It was in a corner in like the parish hall. Um, and then I think a year later, I was old enough to go to the official preschool at the church and school, which uh, I did a lot of living at uh, from mm -hmm. that point on in my life. Uh, it's still there in Portland. Uh, and uh, I pray for them. They, they don't necessarily send out the same newsletters I would. Um, but all that said, uh, that place was a place I do have fond memories of. There are there are corporate ideas, uh, the mascot, some of the team sports that were played together, uh, yeah. you know, old friendships that come out of this. But I also, I remember some very horrible things, actually. And, and the most profound is the day that the, the sixth grade teacher threw his chair entirely across the room so it hit the far wall in the middle of his regular. I mean, he yelled at us all the time. But this is, you know, he threw the chair. I mean, it was level for 15 feet and hit the wall. And, and I remember that vividly. And I never questioned it. I never thought this is bad. I never thought any of this is wrong or weird. You know, the Challenger exploded on TV. It's just... Uh, 1984, I guess, and yeah, I'm growing yeah. up, and I don't even know it yet, right? Yeah. Then I, uh, my my parents move. I move when I'm uh, finishing sixth grade, so I get that that lovely dose of lose all your friends the moment everything gets awkward and scary, and dropped into a private Lutheran school attached to a church in Southern California. Still there, uh, son of the church pastor, and to my knowledge, um, they don't know about my books. It makes me sad, but that's again neither here nor there in terms of Lutheran Church Missouri Center relations. What I want to share again is that, so this school took everything that was joyous about the previous experience yeah. and made it awful. And then they were not for any fault of theirs per se. And I'll admit that I'm a difficult human, but <laughs> you know, 
all the same, it became nothing but torture and torment and a place where then I was introduced to uh, sins of the flesh I had not been introduced to before. From there, I graduate, uh, and I wrote a confirmation speech in which I talk about the grace of Jesus Christ. And I, I wonder how in heaven I actually did that at that time. I was either just copying what they told me to say, but I don't think so because I remember how poor the confirmation curriculum was and how little it had to do with anything that would have had to do with Lutheran distinctives. Anyway... So I end up graduating from there, and now I'm in public high school. So now I'm with, with all the officially dumb people, right? We have, like, our private dumb people and then the officially dumb people. And so you know, I get into that sector in which this is normal, this is life forever, and golly, I mean, I was unprepared on so many levels. I'll just say that it, I can't imagine what it's like now. It was, if you are not a strong male, I cannot imagine what it's like now. I cannot. It was hard then. And, uh, and I was not a strong male. So uh, that process, I don't think I need to talk more about for the sake of giving uh, my history so that I can say what I'm going to say next, which is that after then uh, graduating and teaching high school for six months at a Lutheran high school in uh, the Los Angeles County area, that's six months for a year, uh, taught, uh, taught English uh, and a few other things and saw on the inside how dysfunctional, poorly run, without money, doing all the wrong things that are long-term going to destroy you, a Lutheran school can be. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up going to the seminary uh, because I realized that uh, the parents really needed a lot of help if we were going to ever help the kids. And, and that was idealistic of me, I suppose. But it was part of my thinking is, is these kids need parents who believe. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to become a pastor. So I, I went to the seminary. And while there, you know, my wife and I have kids, and we're intending at this point to homeschool. Uh, we end up on the East Coast for a while, running to you guys over there and this, this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and at that point, when we we're like ready to move from, you know, the, the reader, Phyllis Schlafly's first reader, which we use for all our kids, great. Before we move from that into like official homeschool uh, with some sort of curriculum or idea, we realized that there was an online charter school that Pennsylvania had where we could effectively get some of the basic things we didn't want to do or didn't think we could do at the time done Mm -hmm. for Chloe, our our oldest. And so we've experienced online charter public schooling. And actually it was the best of anything besides homeschooling that I've been through because you could basically outsource like typing, right? Like that's awesome, right? Uh, You don't Mm -hmm. have to worry about that one. But from there, we moved to the Midwest, and I ended up at a congregation that was large and successful to all eyesight. Uh, there was a school and uh, three pastors on staff, and I was able to spend a good portion of my week, I mean, uh, three classrooms every day for an hour each, uh, so that I could teach fifth graders and seventh graders and eighth graders in this system, which again, I'd grown up in. Yeah, And yet, I, I wanted to homeschool, but because of this school being what it was because of beliefs about the role of the pastor and, and things yeah, that were said right. about what pastors should do. Um, I said, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and put my, my kids into this. And immediately Chloe changed. I noticed an immediate behavior problem change. There was nothing we could do about it. Um, we happened to leave. We, we enrolled a couple other kids a couple of years there. We left three years later, but all our kids, we, they were just in it. And we're like, but I didn't like it. I did not like mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. I also, I can tell this story. I remember when, as pastors, we attempted to get the teachers to start using the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer as like an opening statement in the classroom mm-hmm. instead of the Pledge of Allegiance and the Pledge of the Christian Flag. I mean, they, mm-hmm. we still do the Pledge of Allegiance, but take out the Christian Flag and just say Ten Commandments, Creed, Lord's Prayer. And the amount of resistance we got from a room full of called Lutheran teachers blew my mind it blew my mind how hard is this what kind of request you think this is tough it's 
five minutes max, right? And it, and it was like we had asked them to worship Baal. It was, it was unbelievable to me. I also experienced there uh, a tremendous resistance to the homeschool movement and a hatred for it within the teaching staff of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod teachers. They are, they're afraid of it. They don't understand it. They have a polemic that is against it that is mostly nonsense and fear-mongering, and yet yeah. it's common. It's very common and very believed. Um, let me finish my, my, my history. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely yeah, sure. respond to all this. So from there, I end up going to North Dakota. And a long story about all that, you can ask me privately if you ever meet me. But while there, we say, well, look, we've done everything else, and we've moved to the 1950s America. The public school here, everyone tells us, is just like it used to be. So, okay, fine. There's, there's no other schools in town. Everybody goes to this school. There are no homeschoolers. Here we go. We go in, and again— Again, within a year, the behavior of my children is getting worse. And it's not, it's not big things. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's the small, it's the way they treat each other, the way they don't know each other, the way don't, they don't love each other. And yeah. seeing that happen, combined with hearing my children, who we were working with them against some of the, the propaganda, be nice, no bullying, do whatever we say, they resisted that. And at the same time, I would catch them preaching it to me. They would actually say it to me. Um, there was one time when I was beating myself up, and I, and I think I said, um, I suck at this. And my daughter said something like, don't tell yourself you suck. You never suck. And, and I, I thought in my head, they got her. They got her. <laughs> they got her. Yeah. What am I going to do? Dear Jesus, what am I going to do? So, okay. After being there, uh, we, we did move one more, two more times. But since then, we have been homeschooling free and clear, not ashamed, private education at its best, with the certainty that my children's relationship with the, each other is the primary gift they're getting out of all of this. Yeah. yeah. And the reason the reason for that is that wherever your kids go to school, you're not actually preparing them for school. You're preparing them to be human beings, that, you know, decent human beings, godly human beings their entire lives. So you have to ask yourself, how will that actually occur for this child? Right. So if that will occur for this child eventually by his going to medical school, then send him to medical school. But that's not really the issue for a 10-year-old or an 18-year-old. So you want to think about that, whatever kind of schooling you're picking for your kids, because also the, the reason that, that homeschooling is not competition for anybody is because nobody's actually by nature in competition with the parents of a child for schooling. That is the decision of parents. So, you know, you can make a decision other than homeschooling, but you know, if Lutheran parents decide to homeschool, they are choosing to school their Lutheran children in Lutheran Christianity simply at home rather than inside a school building. And this is a distinction that a book that, you know, I mean, ideologically, I know I totally disagree with the guy, but it's a good history. This Powerless Pedagogues book I mentioned from like 72 or 74, Mm -hmm. something like that. You know, he identifies, he says, eventually we go from defending the notion of Lutheran schools, having a school for Lutheran children in each congregation, to defending the school system. Mm -hmm. And it's the same shift that public education undergoes from there is a school in any given community if you want to send your kid to it, to you need to send your kid to this school. If you don't, you're at least weird. And in some cases, at least provisionally, you're disobeying the law. You know, Amish father who's getting sent to jail in the 1930s in Pennsylvania, 1960s in Wisconsin. Sayeth Tutulu. 
Yeah. So I think that you're, you're dealing with a misunderstanding where people object to homeschooling per se. You're dealing with a misunderstanding on the deepest level of who's actually responsible for training the young. Right. And it is by nature, their parents. You're also dealing with a misunderstanding of the value of quote socialization Mm-hmm. misunderstanding also of what would actually constitute being a social human being, which doesn't have to do with being with a lot of other 11 year olds in the same room all day for five days a week. Nonetheless, you're dealing with a misunderstanding of what actually a human being needs to learn. He needs to learn things like how to manage money, how to read, write, and do arithmetic. He needs to learn how to honor his God. He doesn't need to learn how to obey everything an authority tells him how to do what to do. And that is usually what you learn overwhelmingly in public school is that no matter what you're interested in, you have to move at the pace that the teacher chooses, no matter what you want to do or could do with the rest of your day, you have to sit here, right? That's what you learn functionally. That's what would be called the hidden curriculum. And that's why I think a really good place to start if you're just looking into this or you're trying to introduce other people, especially people that are religious only in a fringy way or not at all would be to start with like John Taylor Gatto because he has the street cred. He was the best teacher in New York city public schools for like three or four years by acclamation of his peers. Okay. And he said, I'm just tired of this. This is wrong. Hmm. We need to stop doing this to kids. Hmm. Uh, And as a, you know, as a graduate of, you know, said public schools, uh, I totally agree. Yeah. So, so both of us have histories, I think, that give us a reason to think what we think and say what we say. Yeah. We know there are detractors out there, some who are our friends, I think, and ought to yeah. still be our friends because Christianity <laughs> doesn't need to divide over whether or not you have a school system or you homeschool your kids. Right. Uh, even though some of us might think the other side's really wrong about that. So that, that's a really kind of, kind of key thing in this. Um, and then from there, what's most important is going to be what we say about what to do with homeschooling after 2020. 